0: Hello and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am back with another episode in our bonus series where I talk with writers, podcasters, scholars, artists, filmmakers, musicians about their favorite stories, and joining me today to talk about the 1962 Michael Moorcock novella, When the Gods Laugh, is podcaster Jeff Goad. Jeff is the host of the truly excellent Appendix N Book Club podcast. Jeff, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about this story. Really grateful to have you on the the show with me. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us about the Appendix N Book Club and, and maybe start with what the heck is Appendix N?
1: Sure. So in 1979, Gary Gygax, the co-creator of Dungeons & Dragons, put out the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide. And in the back of that book was a bunch of appendices. And the Appendix N was the appendix that was covering inspirational reading. And by that, it is both the inspiration for Dungeons and Dragons and books that Gary Gygax thinks that you should turn to to seek inspiration for your games. So, right, right away, being a big Dungeons and Dragons nerd, I'm like, this sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so the Appendix N is a bunch of authors like H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, um, Jack Vance, Michael Moorcock. It's, all authors from the 20th century. There's nothing pre-20th century, and because the list came out in 1979, it's basically just predominantly white male authors from 19 from the 1910s to the 1970s, with a few exceptions. There are also three women on the list. Uh, there is Lee Brackett. Um, there is Andre Norton. And of course, um, the, there's uh, Margaret St. Clair, who is the author of The Shadow People, which is just a
0: wild, wild, wild story. But, um, but yeah, so that's the Appendix N. So that's what it is. Yeah, your episode on the uh, Margaret St. Clair book, uh, I thought actually was really awesome. That book sounded totally crazy, and I have never read her. She shows up in a lot of weird fiction collections. There's actually been a number of really awesome uh, like women in weird fiction or women writers of weird fiction collections that have come out in the last five years, and she's all over those collections, but I've never read her. So that was one of the episodes you guys did that uh, made me really feel like taking a good look at one of her stories on this show. But of all of these writers, or maybe a writer you haven't actually mentioned yet, who, who are some of the absolute favorites that you've covered, or maybe the one favorite. I I don't know if that's putting you on the spot, throwing down a gauntlet.
1: Um, It's not. I would say um, it's a bit of a toss-up for me between Jack Vance and Michael Moorcock. And I would also say, even though Clark Ashton Smith is not officially on the appendix end, Clark Ashton Smith is is absolutely the very top of the list of honorary mentions on the Appendix N, because most people who are really interested in the Appendix N are completely shocked that Clark Ashton Smith is not on that list. So I would say that in general, um, it would be Michael Moorcock, Jack Vance, and unofficially
0: Clark Ashton Smith. You guys have speculated about why Smith is not on that list. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, Some people think that maybe
1: Gygax just forgot to include him. And some people think (laughs) that maybe Gygax just hadn't read Clark Ashton Smith. I know that Gary Gygax was an obsessive, obsessive sci-fi and fantasy reader who had a ridiculously large collection. And I... Really doubt that either of those two theories are correct because I am certain that he had read Clark Ashton Smith just from if he was so obsessively interested in Lovecraft and Robert E Howard, how could he not also be interested in Clark Ashton Smith? And he was obsessively interested in the Ballantine books, adult the, the the adult fantasy series by Ballant in, in um from Ballantine Books, and they were publishing Clark Ashton Smith, so. I feel like he had to have been looking at his personal paperback collection as he was putting this list together. So my theory is that um, it's twofold. One is that Clark Ashton Smith's stories are not usually heroic. The Every single person in a Clark Ashton Smith story... Um, almost always has a horrific end at the sto- at the end at the end of the story, and it's not about heroism and great feats. It's about the um, the futility of even trying. Um, but also, and and you can say, well, yes, Jeff, but that's also what Lovecraft is about. But Lovecraft has cool monsters. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but also, you know, Clark Ashton Smith's stuff is pretty out there. You know, we've got. Necrophilia just being kind of a casual thing that happens in a Clark, in Clark Ashton Smith fantasy stories. And since Gary was also a Jehovah's Witness, um, perhaps he also was just um, either not, maybe he didn't enjoy the stories for those reasons, or maybe he did enjoy them, but just didn't really necessarily want to be recommending for kids to be reading these.
0: Right. There's a a great collection of Clark Ashton Smith stories that that we use here on the show that was uh, collected, edited by Gene Wolfe, who we do another show about the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast on here on the network. And uh, in his introduction, Gene Wolfe says, "Yeah, you should uh, you should know up front that some of these stories are a little bit pornographic, but uh, you should also know that uh, what Smith wrote versus what Smith got published was even more pornographic. So you know, <laughs> take that for take that for what it is. It's uh, it's a great line from that introduction that I, I recommend. But I think that you're probably spot on there because there's there's no way that he could have missed Clark Ashton." Smith and uh, it just doesn't just doesn't make a whole lot of a whole lot of sense to me. But I think you're also right that there is something to the idea that they just aren't good models for a D&D game, at least not the way that he conceived of it. I would totally love to play a D&D game where you don't succeed and you get no experience points and actually you lose a level. Yeah, uh, that would be fun for for I think for a lot of us now to play the game sort of uh, that way, but that was not what Gary Gygax had in mind certainly. Exactly. Well, let's uh, let's turn to talking about the story that you have selected, which is by Michael Moorcock. And one of the features of the Appendix N Book Club that I really love is that you, in particular, Jeff, are very interested in collecting the editions of the books that Gary Gygax would have read. So where did you read When the Gods laugh? What edition are you using here?
1: So the one that I have is the 1973—this um, is the— lancer paperback and because it's a, the because it's a lancer paperback the glue that they used to bind the covers to the to the paperback was terrible so my my, my cover already slipped off of this thing but we've also it's got this gorgeous uh, Jeffrey Catherine Jones, um, cover art where Elric is standing on a boat that is being oared by a bunch of weary bearded, um, probably slaves, and he's like fighting some kind of crazy sea creature with his uh, gigantic sword. Um, that's the one that I'm working with. Where are you working with, Glenn?
0: Well, I have not at all a classic edition. The edition that I've got is from the uh, Fantasy Masterwork series that is published in the UK. It's published by Gollins. This one has a copyright date of 2001. And although this is not, you know, anything that Gary Gygax ever would have seen, uh, it is nonetheless very dear to me because I bought this at the Waterston's bookshop in Leeds in the UK when I lived there uh, for a little over a year, which was an idyllic year. Uh, I was doing my PhD studies. Are part of my PhD studies there. It was just a, a beautiful and brilliant time of my life, and uh, I needed something to read on a train ride someplace. And went down to the bookshop, and I thought, wow, you know, I've only ever read one Elric story in my entire life, and here's a whole collection prominently displayed on this bookend. I'm going to get this, and uh, still has uh, some train ticket stubs in it. And uh, so, yeah, matters a lot to me. So I'm nice. happy to pull that off the shelf. Amazing. Yeah. So it's re- it's really nice. I think for me, when I when I, these uh, when the books have these sort of personal touch, though. I think it's also very cool that you are are collecting those editions. I'm not nice enough to books to to be trusted with those.
1: Oh, I am also not nice enough. This one that I have here is um, highlighted in and the cover is coming (laughs) off and I've underlined things. But um, also one thing at the Appendix and Book Club that we're doing is once we reach um, episode 101, we're expanding the scope of the show to basically just include any of the fiction that could inspire anybody. Um, We're going to continue to cover appendix and specific stuff, but we're also just going to open up the doors to just about anything that we feel like makes sense to go to, to seek inspiration, kind of carrying on what the appendix end is about at its core, but kind of um, opening the doors to a a larger pool of literature. But in doing so, I feel like I'm now going to be a lot less Um, obsessive and compulsive (laughs) around having, um, you know, pre 1979 paperback editions. I think I'm going to just let myself, you know, buy an (laughs) ebook.
0: yeah i I don't know I, I'll, I'll I'll look forward to hearing you talk about that on the show about how you're feeling about that maybe say about episode 120. if you're feeling relieved that you are no longer always having to track down these editions or if you you miss the, the the book sleuthing that I know you have to do to to track some of these down, probably be a bit of both, I suppose.
1: Well, you know with when when we first devised the series, we knew what our reading list was going to be before we had released a single episode. So I was able to start, you know, hunting these books down before other people who were listening to the show were also hunting them down. And now that we're moving to a format where our patrons are voting on which book is going to be read, I don't know what we're going to cover right away, and once I do know, I'm knowing at the same time that my patrons are. So I don't want to be getting into bidding wars with my listeners. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> well, I will say welcome to the club on that. That is how we choose content for this show. And it is a lot of fun for me to see what things people want. You know, we put out a ballot, people vote. I like to watch the results come in. And you know, I'm always sort of surprised about what wins or what doesn't. And of course, everything on the list is always great. But yeah, then it's also a great way to get books and, uh, you know, stories that I've not read ever before and to, to share that love with other people. So that'll be a lot of fun for you guys i'll look forward to uh, to hearing that fa- new phase of the show and just for context for uh, uh listeners who are not listening along to your show though of course i hope they will be after this you're, you're only a handful of episodes away from moving to that model you guys are in the 90s at this point
1: we are and we've actually recorded a few episodes that haven't been released yet so we've already got a few in the bag as well but um right now we have released up through episode 92 And we've currently recorded through 95, but um, starting with episode 101, we are going to be doing, um, we're going to be expanding it, as I mentioned. And the book that won
0: for episode 101 is Charles R. Saunders Amaro. Oh, that's a fantastic book. Well, I'm going to look forward to that. That'll be a really exciting episode for me to hear. Well, let's turn our attention to when the gods laugh here. This is a really big story. It's actually a novella, I think technically by word count, quite a few pages in my edition, but it is also the fourth story of many that feature the iconic sword and sorcery hero, Elric. You described what he looks like on the cover of your edition. Uh, But Jeff, maybe I'll I'll ask you here if you can uh, give listeners a little precis on Elric. What do we need to know about Elric before we talk about this story? I guess maybe, you know, if you were giving this to some friends, telling them to read it without any context, what would you tell them to know ahead of time?
1: Sure. Well, Elric is the albino sorcerer king of Melnibone, and he is the anti-Conan, where Conan is this, um, this bronzed, wild, barbarous man who, um, who loathes civilization. Michael, uh, Michael Moorcock's Elric is a, albino who is without without his magic sword frail and weak and has almost no um his he's frail and weak and requires various drugs to keep him alive and alert but then once he ends up meeting this this sword this cursed rune blade he now like more power surges through him than um than really anybody else on the planet has at that time so he be- kind of becomes this like super super powered dude but he's also just tortured and he's this like super kind of emo goth dude who <laughs> you know he's 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 tortured by by the life that he's lived, by the legacy of these um, debaucherous sorcerer kings, that he is um, part of the lineage, you know. And he, uh, in, in the start of his, in the start of his stories, he is uh, the emperor of this dying kingdom, but he doesn't want to be king. Whereas, you know, Conan is the one who wants to be king and rises to kingdom, uh, kinghood. Elric is the one who is rejecting his his place as emperor and saying, this is not what I want. I I just I love this character. He's just so um, introspective and tortured. And it's just it's not the kind of heroic protagonist
0: that I'm used to seeing in this kind of fiction. Yeah, I mean, he really is very much an anti-hero in in terms of his motives, at least, which is something I want to talk a lot about in this story, So, what motivates him to go on the adventure that he's going to have. This is the first time that I've read an Elric story in, in well, really almost a decade. That It's been a long time since I bought my copy of this book at the Waterstones in in Leeds. And recently, or at least in the last year or year and a half, I guess, I've revisited something that was very, very, very dear to me in my younger days, which is Dragonlance. I reread the very first Dragonlance book. And wow, Raceland. <laughs> Is uh, very much an Elric model uh, sort of character. I mean, there's some real differences there, but in, in terms of thinking about their their frailty uh, and their, their you know sort of their, their physicality on mm-hmm. the on the it, within the story very much, uh Raceland is very much drawing on Elric, though Raceland, of course, is ambitious and, and wants power, whereas Elric, uh, you know, I think you said emo, right? He's definitely full of ennui. You do definitely have the sense that um, he's going to start a, a band any day now and just sing songs, Uh maybe use, you know, convert Stormbringer into a guitar, which I would read that book. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
1: And, you know, Stormbringer, um, for those who don't know Elric, is this um, this chaotic black blade that when it strikes you and kills you, it eats your soul. So you just, you cease to exist. There is no afterlife for you. But while it is happening, you are very aware of the fact that the very essence of who you are is being decimated by this blade. So it's a truly horrific experience to be slain by Stormbringer. And in the very first story that Michael Moorcock ever wrote about Elric, which is the story that immediately precedes this story, um, he ends up in a rage where he's having a big fight with a bunch of people. When the battle is over, he's still fighting and he ends up killing the love of his life, Simrel, who is also his cousin, but... Whatever.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we all have flaws. We all we all have flaws. And yeah, that's where we're going to meet him in this story. Before we get into doing the synopsis, though, I just have to say, yeah, Stormbringer is freaking cool. Right? Yeah. Uh, I do a Gene Wolfe podcast in addition to this podcast. Uh, Book of the New Sun is an amazing fantasy series, and Terminus Est is a really cool sword. But Stormbringer is probably the coolest sword in fantasy literature. Agreed. Well, now that I have aired that, and we'll see how many angry emails I get from our Gene Wolf fans here. Though you know, I'm I'm up for it. I, I will look forward to that conversation. But let's uh, let's give a little synopsis of this story before we get into to talking about uh, what we love about it, and maybe ask some questions about the particulars of the story as well. Uh, this is a big story, as I said, so I'm going to try to give a very brief synopsis. But we are are nothing uh, if not uh, <laughs> unable to be brief at all here on the podcast network. So we'll see. I, you know, no one hold the timer is what I'm I'm saying here. But uh, the story begins in a tavern. Elric is drowning his sorrows. Uh, We've just heard why, what it is that he has to be sorrowful about when he is approached by a woman named Sharilla. She is not human. She's uh, a member of a winged humanoid species, though she herself does not have any wings. And this is uh, a condition that she considers to be a deformity. And this is going to turn out to be her primary motivation And what Shirilla wants is to enlist Elric's aid in her quest for the Dead God's book. That's a proper noun there. And. This book is exactly what it says in the cover. It's a book that used to belong to some gods who are now dead. Uh, The old gods, uh, these are known as. And allegedly, this book contains all sorts of secret knowledge and magic, but it's not even really known if this book still exists. I mean, the story is that the old gods threw it into the sun, though there is another story that some other group of gods, dark and unknown, saved the book and have hidden it away. And and that is going to turn out to be true. But why bother, right? Well, shirilla thinks that the book will provide her with magic that will enable her to give herself wings, and this matters to her because having wings will allow her to feel normal among her people. Though she does not tell Elric this up front. It's very personal. It's very private. It doesn't come out until a sort of more uh, intimate and tender moment in the story. But Elric wants to find out if there is any real order or purpose to the cosmos. He's full of maybe not quite cosmic horror, but, but cosmic ennui maybe is the way that I would put that. He doesn't see any meaning to life and certainly not any meaning to his suffering. And he wants to know if there actually is anything to it, or if it's all just, you know, sound and fury signifying nothing. And for him, this is really framed as wondering whether there is an omnipotent and omniscient God above all of the petty gods of law and chaos who he knows are definitely real and who are locked in an eternal struggle with each other. Now, This story here, right? we we framed this at the start, Jeff, about how this is not a Conan story, but this is also not a Lovecraft story. So this is not a story about scholars trying to find a lost book. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's not going to be any visits to libraries, no dead languages. There's none of that sort of thing. This is a sword and sorcery adventure. And so the element that is new, the element that's going to let Shirilla and Elric find this book that others have not been able to find is that Shirilla has a map, uh, or at least she had one. And so they're off. And along the way, they have some random encounters. I'm just going to gloss over those because this is attempting to be a synopsis and not a recap. I also have questions about them for you, Jeff. So we're definitely going to get to them. But after some of these random encounters, they do pick up a third companion. Uh, And now three of them, uh, after these encounters, they, they all come at last to the Dead Gods book. And this is in a cave that has a very large lake in it that they have to get across. And then they have to confront the god of entropy who is guarding the book. But he's just a minor god. He doesn't really care all that much about anything, it seems, and and maybe isn't even actually allowed to stop them at this point. That's actually a question that I have about uh, what's happening here in the story. But at any rate, he's quite helpful. He shows them how to get into the castle where the book is held. And that's it. The quest is over. They are all now going to get the knowledge that they seek, the knowledge that will heal them and let them participate in the world the way that they want to. Except, not really. The book is at least 300,000 years old, and when Elric picks it up, it just crumbles to dust. And The story ends outside the the cave now. Elric is angry that Sharilla gave him hope, and... He leaves her at the mouth of the cape to fend for herself while he and their new companion go off, you know, perhaps and presumably to have another adventure together. So big story, a lot going on here. But I, the question I just want to use to to kick us off here, Jeff, is of all of the stories in the universe, why did you pick this one for us to talk about?
1: Well, part of it had to do with me looking at what you've covered already and what you haven't. And um, as I mentioned before, I'm really interested in Jack Vance, Michael Moorcock, and Clark Ashton Smith. And seeing that you had already covered Jack Vance and Clark Ashton Smith, um, to some extent, made me say, well, let's start with Michael Moorcock. And um, one thing that a lot of people don't know about the Elric stories is that... um, the, the story that immediately precedes this one is the first one that he ever wrote about Elric. And Elric dies at the end of the second collection of short stories that Michael Moorcock wrote. And he, had, and he had planned for that to be the end of this character. And that final story where Elric dies is incredible. And it's the only thing that I've read in the appendix and that actually brought tears to my face. I cried while reading that story. Um, but um his fans of course were like um excuse me like we don't want this person to be dead (laughs) so ultimately um he ended up writing a, a ton more Elric stuff but it all takes place prior to the thing that we're reading today and the reason why I picked this specific story uh for us to cover here is because it's it's not necessarily one of the major stories where Elric's Elric's personal tale is being told. It's just a really great example of how this character can be used to tell a really cool sword and sorcery tale um, while also completely subverting
0: sword and sorcery and what it's about. Something that always fascinates me so much about, Elric about Conan it's about what Lovecraft did Clark Ashton Smith as well and and frankly even like Sherlock Holmes right any of these stories that have iconic heroes or are taking place in a sort of made up world with different sets of adventurers is the fact that none of these people had a real impulse to write these stories in order they would just write a story and then come up with another story idea and say okay but how do i fit that in if i even want to how do how do i fit that in with what i've already written, which is just so alien to the way that I think we certainly as consumers of literature, uh, speculative fiction literature want today, but also just of, of how things are, how, how creators are going about their business when they're inventing worlds or inventing iconic characters. There's a real sense that stories need to, be, need to be told in order. And I actually really like it better this way, I think.
1: Well, I also think part of it is it's... Um you know, authors are a product of the formats that they're working within. And initially people like Robert E. Howard were working in pulp magazines. And when you're working in pulp magazines, you just tell like a really cool story and it's a short story. And if you like that character, then you return to it. And maybe you're going to write about something that happened later in that person's life. Maybe you'll write about something that happened earlier in their life, but because it's in a magazine format, um, you know, we're not getting these like epic, um, you know, young young man to, you know, uh, the end of the world or to, you know, saving the end of the world. <laughs> you know, we're just getting these like little snippets of their lives. And then once um, the the genre moved primarily to paperbacks... Then we started getting more interested in more long-form stories. But even with paperbacks, we were limited by binding technology. Like we were only able to have so many pages in a paperback. You know, um, one of the reasons why um, J.R.R. Tolkien was so against having his works published was um, published in paperback was exactly because of. Because of those kinds of issues. Um, but then as it got better and by the time we got into the 80s, we started being able to publish you know 1,200 page paperbacks, <laughs> then suddenly what we were looking for as consumers also changed and what authors were looking to do also changed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Something you guys have been doing on your show is the Chronicles of Amber by Roger Zelazny mm-hmm. where this is real clear and and kind of at the cusp of this right these are all being published in the 70s and have real interesting publication histories in that some of them are actually published serially in magazines before they uh, before they hit the the book market the mass market paperback mm-hmm. market but even when they do right they're in these sort of 200 page ins- installments where today all ten, or maybe f- let's say the first five and the second five of those books would be published as complete stories, right? If they were going to be published today, and so and and in fact are right now. Now you just if you want those, uh, you know, and especially I guess now that you're letting yourself off the hook for, for tracking down uh, the editions that Gary Gygax would have read, right? That uh, if you're going to get that today, you're going to get that in a single bound volume like that because yeah, that is what that is what consumers want today. But I I miss these days, though. Of course, you know the good news is they're still there. I can still get them. I can still go read these stories. And And it's great to have uh, have variety and have alternatives. But I think this is a really fun mode of of storytelling because it creates also these constraints, right? When you're thinking about what's the story I'm going to tell next? How do I fit it into what I've already done? For me, that seems like an interesting, just a creative writing prompt to give yourself rather than to, you know, set yourself the task of mapping out a a million word, 10 book series of progression fantasy, which is a challenge I would balk at for sure.
1: Absolutely. You know, it's like, I, I, I adored the song of ice and fire books, but also there were times where I'm like, do I really need to spend a hundred pages with Brienne while she's walking through the woods? You know, and the the short answer to that question is no, I don't. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's like, let's just skip to the, the, to the exciting, interesting stuff.
0: Right. Well, this story as well has maybe some of that in the sense that the the obstacles in this story really very much feel like D and D random encounters to me. Right, that they're they're in a tavern, they need to get to someplace else on the map of this fantasy world, and in between there are some landscapes that are prone to having monsters, and so they encounter you know monsters of a of a sort on their on their way. But those adventures are not necessarily in really linked up with what the ultimate goal of the of the story is, right? Finding this this book. They are a little bit in the sense that we eventually learn that actually the God protecting the book has kind of sent these things after them. And also these give us some moments where we get to have Elric and Shirrilla talking to each other. This is where we get some of their backstory and learn about their motives and so on. But the adventure itself feels very random and disconnected in that sense. Uh, at least that's how I felt about it.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely, and it's also where we meet Moonglum, and Moonglum is Moonglum becomes Elric's right hand man for the whole rest of the series. He's in every single story from this story forward. He's um, a really uh, kind of essential component to Elric's misery. This kind of um, goofy, sardonic sidekick, (laughs) and you know, one thing that. is clear about the clear to me about the stories written later that happened earlier in his life is because the Moonglum was such an important balancing character to Elric that Moorcock was constantly trying to find other characters to provide that same kind of balance for him. Um, But yeah, their encounters are not necessarily, you know, Story advancing, um, in the sense that the 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 battles themselves aren't, but they are in terms of character development and character understanding. You know, um, Moonglum is brought in, and we we learn a lot about Moonglum's personality through the way that they that these characters interact with these um, with these encounters, and also it, the stakes become clearer for us as readers because of these encounters.
0: Absolutely. That's true. I actually really quite enjoy these encounters. I just, but I do think that if I were going to, you know, I don't know, if Michael Moorcock were in a writing group that I was in, the note I would give would be to, you know, make these obstacles seem a little more directly relevant to the ultimate objective, Mm -hmm. though. I don't know that that, you know, he doesn't need my story notes for sure. But you can also see very clearly, right, like that, that this sort of thing clearly influences what D&D is all about. I mean, even just like the very idea of, uh, of a random encounter. But what are, what are some other places where you see this story influencing D&D?
1: Well, the most direct thing is alignment. Um, you know, in the original Dungeons and Dragons in the 1974 um, three booklet brown box version of Dungeons and Dragons, which was the first version of it, there were three alignments law, neutral, and chaos. There was no good. There was no evil. There was no nine axis. It was just the three. (laughs) And that is something that is um, so alive in this story. And, you know, Moorcock's not the first person to to explore this. Um, Paul Anderson um, was exploring this in The Broken Sword and to some extent in – Three, what is it? Uh, Three hearts, three lions. Thank you, yes, three hearts and three lions. But it really becomes like palpable and cool and really, really interesting in the hands of Michael Moorcock, at least in my opinion. There's this thing on page 65 of my edition that I just thought was so cool, and it says, um, It is believed by many sorcerers and philosophers that two forces govern the universe, fighting an eternal battle, Elric replied. These two forces are termed law and chaos. These are values supposedly set above the qualities men call good and evil. The upholders of chaos state that in such a world as they rule, all things are possible. Opponents of chaos, those who ally themselves with the forces of law, say that without law, nothing material is possible. So cool.
0: Yeah, what a crazy worldview, but also, I think, really compelling. Uh, I'm really interested in the, in the worldview that we get in this story. And I maybe have a lot of questions about this. But one of the things that just jumps out there for me is that this is sword and sorcery that is written in the aftermath of the Second World War, where the very nature, the very idea of thinking about concepts of good and evil seems, I think, trite at this point. And that Law and and chaos seem perhaps more descriptive of of what the real sort of poles of of, of the world, at least, or, or of society could actually be. But it's also a real bleak picture because it's just sort of saying that goodness doesn't matter. That's not not an attribute, not an element of the world that really matters. But you know, for someone who grew up, I, I guess Moorcock must have been growing up during the Second World War and certainly been an adolescent uh, in the immediate aftermath of it. I mean, I think this makes sense as a worldview.
1: Yeah. So Michael Moorcock, um, who, for the record, is the only currently living appendix and author, and we had the incredible um, good fortune of actually getting to meet Michael Moorcock and interview him on the show, and you know that old adage, never meet your idols? Uh, Michael Moorcock <laughs> is a fantastic ex- um, um, exception to that adage. Like, that was just an incredible experience meeting this person. Um, but yes, you're right. Michael Moorcock was born in 1939, and this particular story was written in 1961. So he was 22 years old when he wrote this story. Um, and yeah, the, the world is a very changing world
0: at this point. And the the motive that Elric has here, right, is that he wants to know if there is something beyond that, right? If there is some kind of, you know, a prime mover, right, to borrow Aristotle's language, or we might say, you know, a one God, a one true God, you know, if there is something like that in the universe that really actually has created all of this, has ordered all of this, and maybe even actually preordained a lot of this such that there's some kind of meaning to his suffering, some kind of purpose to it and, and to his life and to everyone's life here. I'm a little skeptical though if knowing that, like definitively knowing that, would really have helped Elric. What what do you think about that?
1: I, I think he's telling himself that this is information that would help him, but I think more than anything, he is searching for reason behind why Simeril had to die. You know, this is somebody who he truly, truly, truly loved. And because of the role that he's now playing in this struggle between law and chaos, he lost the person who mattered to him most. So I think that's what he's seeking. He's seeking an understanding about what the, what the reasoning behind all this was and if it's worth it.
0: Yeah, I I agree completely, and it it is commonplace and uh, it, and it is commonplace, right, to ask this type of question. I suppose we we tend to maybe package this as the the simple question of you know why do bad things happen to good people, and and especially why does that happen if if, if there is a God, right? If God has created the universe, God has created us. Why? Do bad things happen, right? This, this is called theodicy uh, in theology and philosophy, right? The problem of of evil. Why does evil exist in in the universe? Because, especially if you're thinking in a, in terms of a, an omnipotent monotheism, there's the question of, or, or there's the the two options are that either God is not actually omnipotent, or God is permitting these things to happen and possibly even designing them. And those are, I mean, that's a cosmic horror right there, to, right? To, to suffer a kind of loss or, or be involved in a, a tragedy and then to kind of be faced with that question for the first Time. There's not really any coming back from that. And searching for the answer, I think, is really important. I think almost all of us, you know, at some point in our, our young adulthood, uh, you know, have, are faced with questions like that about why these bad things happen. And here we're getting Elric doing exactly that. I am a little skeptical about whether or not, you know, finding the answer, whether it's yes or no, is what's going to help him. But I do think that Elric is aided here a lot by having some kind of purpose, right? He's asking, is there a purpose in the world? But it in fact actually he's giving himself a purpose by making you know the quest for that and the quest for that answer his actual purpose.
1: Exactly and essentially the fact that he gets no answer is the answer he needs.
0: Absolutely because if you get the answer then what you 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 go home you go back to that that bar right and and then where are you he's just really back where he's going to be I think anyway.
1: Yeah because it's it's a choice between either Yes, he is a pawn in something that is greater than him, in which case, you know, he is kind of, he himself is meaningless. The only things that actually matter are his actions, or he's not a pawn in this greater struggle and nothing that has happened means anything. So either answer sucks. Right.
0: Both answers are not going to solve his problem. I have the sense uh, that he is hoping that the answer is yes. Is that the sense you have? That the answer is that. Yeah, that he's a pawn, essentially. That there is someone out there. There is a a prime mover, a one god. There's something above law and chaos that is ordering things.
1: He's a character who goes back and forth with wanting to be a a player in the paths that fate has placed him on and somebody who at other times who fights against it. Um, So I feel like... It changes a lot from day to day for him. I think this is a constant struggle for him. Does he want to be this person who, whose actions can change the world? Like, yes, that sounds really exciting and amazing, but also no, like I want to be a person who can have, um, an authentic life that like is full of meaning and, and love. Um, but he, he can't have these
0: things. And that's one of the things that I really love about the Elric series is that one, you know, that's I think the experience of a real person is that you know we don't necessarily have this kind of consistency in what we want from day to day or you know year to year certainly and as the conditions of our life change, we might want actually to have a different answer to this question. I think right now where he is dealing with the fact that he has killed his his love and he wants to be let off the hook for that. that. That seems to be what he's looking for the most. He wants to be told that you're just a pawn in this thing. And so that wasn't really you. There was a greater purpose to that because here he's looking about, you know, the bad thing that happened is something that he's responsible for, not simply something that's accidental, something that happened. Uh, or, or I guess it is accidental, but something that happened to him rather than something that he was an agent in. But but that pendulum is going to swing the other way at some point. And yeah, he's, of course, going to, like we all would, perhaps want the answer to be a little bit different there. But one of the other things that I really love about the way that this gets portrayed in these Elric stories is that ultimately Elric Becomes kind of the answer to this question for readers, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with with this. I don't know that this is a reference you guys have ever made on on the appendix, and <laughs> Jeff. But the the TV show Angel, the uh, the spinoff from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is a great weird fiction show. It's an occult detective show where the the main character is a you know vampire who is a, a detective and. Ultimately, the worldview of that show—the the, catchphrase—is when nothing we do matters. All that matters is what we do, and I think Elric really embodies that.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a big Buffy Angel geek, and I've watched both of those series multiple times. So that's that that warms my heart to hear the reference. <laughs> uh, but yes, absolutely, you know, and um, in in taking, I, I think a, a good way to understand who Elric is from a literary perspective is this like killing your idols thing where Michael Moorcock loves Conan, wants to write Conan stories, but also wants to completely, you know, murder the legacy of Conan and completely (laughs) rewrite that and, and subvert it, you know, and Conan is somebody who he always knows what he wants. Conan is never floundering for, um, an explanation, um, Conan knows what he wants and he goes after what he wants. Um, Elric, what he wants is constantly shifting. You know, even in this one short story or, or novelette, um, it's he. one of the things he fantasizes about with this book is getting an answer that also might free him from um, his dependence on Stormbringer. He would love to not have Stormbringer to get rid of this thing. But then also... Um, later in the story, there's a moment that he says, without this black blade, I am nothing. You know, so it's
0: like he, he's so conflicted. He wants to get rid of this thing, but without it, he's nothing. This is part of what makes Stormbringer the coolest sword in fantasy, right? Is that it's actually the sword you don't want to have, right? Like if you if you go into a you know a, a pawn shop and uh, you know for some reason they've got a whole array of fantasy swords, don't buy Stormbringer. Just let that one stay on the shelf for for some other poor sucker to get, right? And that is one of the things that makes it so cool. And yeah, I love the way that you're contrasting Elric with Conan here. I mean, look, Elric is kind of an, he's an intellectual, he's the thinking person here. Contemplative is actually, I guess, the word that I'm really looking for there, right? He contemplates the universe, the cosmos, and what it's all about, what his role in it is, and thinks about his life. He reflects on the things. Conan just is a, he's a he, he didn't He just wants to eat and he wants to have sex and he wants to drink wine and he loves fighting. So that's all he's looking for is, right? Where, where can I get the, the things that I want for my body? Where's that? is it, is it left? Is it right? I'll go wherever that is. But Elric has a little more, a little more depth to him than that.
1: Yeah. And Conan is, Conan is not dumb and he is not anti-intellectual. Conan is incredibly smart. He is a master strategist. You know, he is a very, very, very um, mentally capable person, but you're absolutely right. He's not, um, he's not overly contemplative and he's not questioning his place in the world or, or questioning the meaning of these things. Or if he is, we are never seeing any of that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though, I would love a Conan story that's just like him reading some poetry and like really deeply engaging with it. Or actually even better, yeah, here's what I really want. And I, I'm just gonna going to shout this out to the internet ether is that someone needs to do a uh, a podcast uh, that is <laughs> that is in the guise of Conan uh, doing a book club podcast. I wanna know what Conan thinks about that about poetry. or or classic literature or something like that. I would love that. Please, someone do that. But the other thing, of course, that and and this for me was a big deal that Michael Moorcock has done with Elric and and has talked about is, you know, to be pretty anti-Tolkien. And that was actually how I first encountered Michael Moorcock as a teenager was his criticism of Tolkien. And Tolkien is what I grew up on. It was everything to me. And so I didn't really read a lot of Elric uh, when I was younger. I'd, I'd read some, but I, I was sort of determined to not like it because he had uh, it said mean things about my hero. And uh, of course, now, you know, I totally appreciate exactly Michael Moorcock's criticism of Middle Earth and, and the worldview of the Lord of the Rings. And of course, Want there to be responses to that, even critiques of that, out there in literature, uh, and uh, and and I think Elric does a great job of that as well.
1: I agree. One of the things that we've talked about on the show that we've that I, I personally find fascinating is how you know so much of the rise of what we think of as fantasy now is directly the the inheritance of um, to, uh, Tolkien's. Fellowship of the Ring and Lord of the Rings series. Um, but, and it's also fascinating how this happened in um, pr- primarily in the 1960s because the youth culture really embraced it. And like the hippies loved this, um, the, the, the Lord of the Rings and really kind of added to, you know, it becoming this thing that like everybody started to read. But what's interesting is kind of at its core uh, the messaging of The Lord of the Rings is that um, kind of middle-class suburban life is the thing that needs to be protected, and we need to protect things from changing. So it's also interesting that the very people who are trying to change society were so drawn to the story about um, about protecting these kind of middle-class conservative values.
0: and. There's a big part of Moorcock's critique of The Lord of the Rings that that certainly could not possibly have made sense to, uh, you know, a 12-year-old kid growing up in the Chicago suburbs or, or really, you know, anywhere in America because so much of it is wrapped up in uh, royalist politics of the UK. I, I don't know if we've been clear for listeners who might not know. Michael Moorcock is, is British, though. I think he lives in Texas, I think, now, which is just an interesting life story on its, on its well, own. But- I'll, I'll
1: quickly throw in there. He lives in Texas six months of the year and Paris the other six months
0: yeah okay well small small town (laughs) in texas (laughs) For six months, Paris for the other six. Uh, How do I get that life? I guess the answer is invent an iconic sword and sorcery character. (laughs) See if I see if I can get on that. But that's amazing. But that's a huge part of the context for the critique of the Lord of the Rings that I think is definitely spot on because a huge part of the worldview there, which is maybe not something that Tolkien necessarily would have been advocating for so much as he is writing essentially medieval literature fan fiction and something that is very much a part of medieval literature. is of course this idea that the 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 peace and the prosperity of the realm, or you know, you're, you're the place where you live, is dependent on the moral character of the the person in charge, right? And that is an inherently royalist, inherently you know, pro monarchy uh, worldview. There, that Moorcock definitely in the the critique that I remember reading as an as an adolescent really uh, bristled against, and we can see that in the character of Elric, who although I find him really compelling is definitely like, I'm not going to vote for him. <laughs> well, he's he's not running, so don't worry. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but he just he's not someone I would want to be in charge. Uh, I don't know that wanting to be in charge is actually a really good criteria for you should be in charge. Maybe the opposite there, but I just don't know that he would do a good job, right? And so that's one of the things that just kind of embedded in Elric as a character that I you know think is a very clear response uh, to the Lord of the Rings, even more than it is to to Conan. Though of course the first Conan story is Conan is the king. Well, I will say if
1: you are living in Melnibone, you might want to have Elric as your emperor because one of the reasons why he is an outcast amongst other Melnibinians Mel- Mel- Melnubians is that um, he is nowhere near as um, cruel and doesn't delight in the tortures of his subjects the way (laughs) (laughs) that Melnubian nobles are expected to. So um, although you wouldn't vote for him to be president of the U.S., perhaps you would be happier living under his reign than any of his family's (laughs)
0: reign. Yeah, fair enough. It is. It is indeed all all relative. But uh, I don't know. I guess since I'm ranking uh, things that appear in fantasy stories, I'm just going to go ahead and say, yep, Stormbringer, best fantasy sword. But you know, Aragorn. Like, I think if I had to pick someone to be the king, I would be. It would be Aragorn. And actually, I bet Conan as king was great. I'd be. I'd be down to King Conan. Yeah, Conan actually was really great. And and although I was describing him as not being intellectual, which I will stand by, that he is not that type of a thinker, though you're right, that he is extremely intelligent and very clever. The first scene that we get of Conan is him reading. He's just doing the paperwork of his job. He takes it very seriously and yep. actually is quite competent. And I think there's three short stories and then the, um, uh, the one full-length novel that Howard wrote, uh, you know, in the Howard uh, uh, versions of Conan's stories anyway, right? There's sort of four stories where he's and he's doing a great job he all is and
1: he's also doing things to lift up the poor and because of that the merchant class is turning against him and now the merchant class is um, kind of working in the shadows to make the people think that conan is this like horrible invader who's like ruining their lands uh, and <laughs> there some interesting uh
0: <laughs> parallels yes. to real world
1: politics
0: there are. There's actually, I think, uh, a, a really great article. Perhaps someone has written it. I was about to say that that, that could be written. Maybe someone has written it uh, about the uh, the political philosophy of the Conan stories. I mm-hmm. mean, um, you see it very clearly in these stories where he's the king, but it does show up in some of the other stories as well. And uh, I should say, too, that that we are, uh, Brandon and I, on uh, the you know, regular episode of the show, going to be doing a Conan story, which is, is not the first Conan story Brandon and I have talked about, but it'll be the first one that we're airing here on on Elder sign. It is not one where he is king and does not have a whole lot of political philosophy, but does have some 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 other interesting uh components of Howard's worldview there. I'm excited to cover that story. Brandon and I'll be recording that actually in just a few weeks, though it won't air for a few more months uh till after this one. But so setting aside, you know, the sort of Elric kind of writ large, I was also really interested in the character of Sherilla in this story, who I don't think we ever actually Meet again? Is that right? No, yeah, we don't encounter shirilla again. I don't think. So, what what do you think? It does happen next in her story, right? Like, if 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 the prompt was go write a a, a sequel to this story from shirilla's perspective, what does she do now that she's just been left by by Elric and Moonglum outside this cave?
1: Oh gosh, I don't know. So um, clearly, she is um, she was capable enough to is, to go from her lands. Um, and seek Elric, who I believe she said she'd been seeking for months. And Elric makes a comment about how like, wow, that's impressive that somebody as beautiful as yourself has just been like walking around the 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 wilds of the world, adventuring essentially for as long as you have. Uh, so she seems like she's very capable of taking care of herself. Um, so I think, and, and especially knowing that most of the bad things that were happening to them were happening to them by design to prevent them from getting to where they got. Um, so I would like to imagine that she was again, capable enough to get back to where she was going, but, um, whether or not she got her wings or not, I'm guessing she probably didn't. Um, I'm guessing she had to go back to her homeland and just kind of deal with the fact that although she's considered beautiful in other places, um, but considered non-human as well. Uh, she is considered deformed amongst her
0: own people. I mean, just what a compelling character that is just like right there, right? Give me that pitch, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm on board. I want to read a series of stories about that character. Who's, who's f- got that internal struggle uh, faced with uh, these, these interesting cultural and social circumstances, but who also uh, can fight some monsters if she wants to. And uh I weirdly would love if someone picked that up. Maybe not necessarily Shirella. I guess uh, he's. I guess you know Michael Moorcock still has the copyright on that. But but something similar to that. I would love to read a, a story about a character with this kind of background. But one of the things that I think is also super compelling about Shirella is that she's not human. I'm really intrigued by this uh, this species that she's a member of. That this humanoid species that have wings. Their kind of uh, evolutionary history shows up in this story. One of the uh, um, random encounters that they have though this is actually once they're in the cave are some winged apes and Sharila says that you know th- those are a sort of related species to hers and she says it in this way uh that that suggests that although you know she's humanoid that the evolutionary story of her species and Humans, they're not really all that related to each other. That the the taxonomical you know st- structure there goes back much further than you would expect. And I'm just interested in that from a world building perspective as well.
1: Yeah, and the Melnibone um, the Mal- they are also
0: not entirely human themselves. Right. And there, there are actually some really interesting features of the world that these Elric stories take place in. Well, there's a, another feature of your show, Jeff, that I really love, another feature of the Appendix and Book Club, which is that you like to talk about a word that you thought was interesting. You actually call these high which is just brilliant. Uh, did you have a high Gaxian word from this story that you found interesting?
1: Uh, Well, what's also funny about the Hygaxian word is um, originally we were just calling it the gaxian word. And then in one of the episodes is one of the first episodes. I just kind of stumbled and accidentally said Hygaxian. (laughs) And then it just cracked me up. So I just kept it. Um, So that's how eventually
0: that's how it ended up becoming the Hygaxian word of the day. Uh, Well, it's brilliant. Hygaxian is. Exactly perfect for what this type of uh, type type of idea is. But um
1: originally the um because I mean we actually had a word of the day for for this collection, and it was uh, sibilant. But one of the things that I've done is I also, when I'm reading the stories, go through and underline words that could be good candidates. So just like flipping through this story, some of the good candidates would be supercilious. Oh, and Sibilant is right here, Um, page 47. (laughs) Wide-eyed in his grim sleep, Elric seemed to be staring at one he named, speaking other words in a Sibilant language, which made Shirilla block her ears and shudder. But then there's also tinctures. That's a good one. Yeah, I'll stop flipping through for underlined words. But (laughs) but (laughs) since, since the word that
0: I had chosen for that actual episode was Sibilant, and it's in this story, I think we should go with that one. Well, I had actually picked out something. I did something a little bit different here rather than pick out a a Hygaxian word. And so I was thinking about this with my my writer hat on. And there's a a particular uh, passage, and I'm afraid I didn't mark the page number, though we've got different editions, so it wouldn't perhaps have been that helpful anyway. But there's this great passage. I'm just going to read this and then talk about why I I, uh, liked it. it. It's this. Something moved slowly, menacingly in the clinging whiteness. Elric's right hand whipped over to his left side and grasped the hilt of Stormbringer. The blade shrieked out of its scabbard, a black fire gleaming along its length, an alien power flowing from it into Elric's arm and through his body. And I just thought this was a brilliant way to write action, uh, to set the sort of mood of this, right? Which is this sort of sense of, of dread and or really menace. I mean, that's the word that's, that's there. There's this threat, but then we get this great Action, this highly evocative uh, word choice here of how, really just describing a, a dude. Pulling a sword out of its uh, sheath, out of its scabbard, by actually giving the agency to the blade. Right. All we have that's narrated about Elric is that his hand whips over. Right. His right hand goes over to his left side and then grasps the hilt. And then the next sentence switches the the point of view or like the, the 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 thing that is doing the action, the thing with the agency, which is Stormbringer itself. Right. That shrieks out of the scabbard. And that is a brilliantly poetical way to describe this. Uh, just really top-notch writing. Cue the Iron Maiden. Oh, (laughs) yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) It's so metal. It is so metal. Yes. And of course, well, I think all, I think really all metal is actually just more cocky and we should probably just (laughs) rename the whole genre.
1: (laughs) There's one more thing that I just, I wanted to underline. Um, So it would be great to just kind of take a second to look at that. But, um, you know, here we have Orunlu, the keeper, who's, you know, as you mentioned before, who's like kind of the person who's guarding this book. And when he asks Elric why he's seeking it, he says, you know, I'm seeking it to, um, I seek truth. And his response to that is there is no truth, but that of the eternal struggle. And I just think that that's also really a, a powerful message to kind of sit with. And I think it's
0: also kind of the, his uh, Moorcock's world-building thesis. I, I agree. And I think even this actually goes back to this uh, bit of angel that I was stealing earlier, right? This idea that when nothing we do matters, all that matters is what we do. The idea that that it's, you know, striving for things, trying to do things is what matters from, from, you know, the perspective of us as humans, but then also looking at this from the perspective of these, you know, these gods of, of law and chaos and their struggle, right. Seeing the world as kind of this, this clash between these two forces of, of order and entropy or chaos and, and law and, seeing that that's how we get this you know this messy world that we that we live in and that we have to navigate and that really all anyone could possibly do in a world like that is try Right. And this is, of course, I think, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit, maybe a lot, actually, about uh, about things that Michael Moorcock is reacting against. Right. Conan, the Lord of the Rings um, here couldn't have been reacting against it. But I will say that this is also pretty anti-Yoda. And I appreciate that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And also, um, you know, bringing it back to Angel as well. The very, very final scene of the final episode of Angel is them running into battle in a fight that they can't possibly win but they're still running into battle and that's the end of the series we don't yeah. we don't know how that fight goes we just know that they've they fought it
0: right and that's all that matters. I mean, that's, that is the theme of the, the whole, you know, all the five season arc of that show is exactly that. That is perhaps my favorite moment in in all of television. And I think actually really is sort of my worldview. I mean, to me, that's like a sermon right there that is inspiring to me, you know, to go out into the world and, and to do, uh, to do my best and to, to think that it is the, the striving that matters and not the, the ticking off of, uh, of accomplishments there. And uh, I find that here in these Elric stories as well, or at least certainly this one. And uh, I, really, I really appreciate that. I think this is a pretty moving story and, um, and, and pretty intense, actually, for a sword and sorcery story. There's a lot of emotional intensity here and I think also some real philosophical weight uh, that is just really excellent. Agreed. Well, I guess that's a pretty good way to lead me into saying thank you so much for picking this story. Yeah, so thanks for picking this story, jeff and and thanks for for guest hosting with me today.
1: yeah, it's been a it's been a real pleasure. I'm really glad to get to go back and revisit this story that I really enjoyed reading the first time, and it's been fun chatting with you about it.
0: Yeah. And of course, you have now uh, opened the floodgates here of, uh, of Michael Moorcock. And uh, that's going to be really exciting for us to just get him into the, the rotation of the show. And And I would love to continue this conversation with listeners. So if you're interested in that, if you will have things to say about this story, and I'm sure you do, we actually get a lot of emails about please do Michael Moorcock. Uh, please drop by the forums at claytemplemedia.com or you can come by our subreddit and uh, let us know what you thought of this story or anything that we had to say about it. And also, please be sure to check out the appendix and book club podcast. It's uh, an amazing show. And I'm sure that you've, you've, uh, you've heard that here. Uh, Jeff, where else can people find you on the internet to, to keep up with what you're doing?
1: Well, I personally recently dropped off. Um, I, I dropped off of social media. I deleted my Twitter, my Instagram, my Facebook, all of that. So I'm no longer on <laughs> social media anymore. But the Appendix N Book Club you can find on Twitter. We've got um, we've got a, a Twitter account there. Uh, we've also got a page on Miwi. Uh, most of you are listening are probably like, "What the hell's Miwi?" Um, and it's just it's a social media platform that a lot of people, a lot of gamers, uh, RPG gamers. Went to when Google Plus folded because G Plus was actually surprisingly a big hub for for gaming stuff. Um, so we're over there as well. And if you have any questions for us or want to reach out to us, you can send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com.
0: All right. And Brandon and I will be back on June 1st with the first of two episodes on Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And then later in the year, we are going to be taking a look at some more Sword and Sorcery. I did mention we're going to be doing a Conan story by Robert E. Howard later this year. We're also going to be doing some uh, Fritz Leiber, our first uh, Fofford and Gray Mauser story as well. Very excited for those things. Uh, but until then, we greet you and say farewell.